wonderful. Um, hi everyone. It's super nice to be here today. Um, before we do anything, I'd like to address something that is personally awkward to me. Um, I've heard many great things about your guys' site. Everyone talks about how lovely it is. I don't totally know how to pronounce it. And I want to I wanna do like a poll of the room, because I want to be really right. I don't want to come off as ignorant or wrong. Is it like Mairns like Nairn, or Mearns like Mr. Burns? Mr. Burns. Mearns, you go, you go low. Mairns. Well, can we get a, a show of hands for high? Who's, who's in the high camp? A little bit over here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you know what? I like an underdog, so I'm going to go with Mairns. <laughs> Burns, yeah, very good. Uh, well, whatever you're called, it's really good to be with you. <laughs> um, I am Johnny. Uh, I do go to the Aberdeen Central site. I do float around a wee bit um, because of my job, not because I'm uncommitted. Uh, I am the student pastor at our church. So for people who are kind of in university or in college or kind of just in that 18 to 24-year-old age, kind of, I go around, uh, which means that I'm often just bouncing between some of our city center sites. Um, but it's lovely to be with you guys. I've never been out here before. Um, and I will say, I've done like a wee tour of the sites. The aesthetics of your guys' place is incredible. Like, this little vista over here is wonderful. Um, I hope it doesn't get like too distracting kind of thing. Like, I would imagine the whole room just eventually looks that way. But you've got this kind of like upper platform, which is great. Wood paneling, natural lighting and artificial light. I mean, everything's going on. So well done to you. You've done a great job here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, so... This morning, we are kind of continuing on in our series as a church, which is called Weak But Strong. Um, it's part of the kind of two Corinthians series. And it's all about the fact that we're all human beings, um, which means that just naturally we are all kind of a bit limited. We're all a bit weak. It's just part of being human. But also the kind of deep spiritual reserve that we have and the fact that we have kind of God and heaven on our side and what it looks like to actually be kind of a Christian that's on fire for God, but in tough seasons of life where things can suck. Um, so what we're talking about today specifically is kind of conflict and resolution and how to do deep relationships that matter through our life. Um, we're going to kind of do a whole bunch of stuff around that. We'll do some quick historical context. We'll do some maybe illustrations and we'll do some kind of deeper points. Does that sound okay to you? Wonderful. You didn't really have a say, but I thought it'd be polite to ask you anyway. Um, would anyone like a Bible before we kind of crack on? No, you're all set. Wonderful. If you would, feel free to just traipse up here and grab one. That'll be fine. Um, for everyone else, we are in 2 Corinthians 1, 12 to 2, 4. I'm just going to grab a quick drink. <clears throat> so, verse 12. Paul's change of plans. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully, so that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle then when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? 
But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would share all my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So it's an interesting passage that there is actually some real gold in there, and there's also some kind of more complicated logistical stuff. So hopefully we'll kind of address all that as the morning goes on. Um, But it is quite important before we continue that we know a bit about the context of this passage. It really affects how we kind of interpret stuff. Um, So if you are a kind of Corinthian scholar, then just sit with us for two minutes. But for everyone else, we're going to go on a little trip to southern Greece, and we're going to learn everything there is to know about it. so if you've not been like a summer holiday, imagine this is the moment. Just kick back, relax, get yourself into it. Corinth, southern Greece. It was a very lively and very modern society. It um, had two kind of ports. So there was a big kind of import coming in from the west and from the east. So there was a lot of money in the place, but there was also a lot of influences and kind of powerful people just speaking different things into the city. Um, and therefore, it was like impressive and it was well known. It held a regular kind of Olympics-like tournament, uh, and the Greek worship culture at the time was to Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. In short, it was this culture that kind of glorified flesh, uh, your kind of yourself, your status, what you could achieve, which in a lot of ways is a little bit like our own society. That's a fun word. (laughs) So naturally, in planting a church, into this kind of culture, Paul is wrestling with a lot of these like, ingrained ideas into this culture. They're brought up thinking all this stuff, and he's trying to teach them, actually, no, 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 this is how you do a church well in this kind of environment. Um, so Paul started that church in Corinth during kind of his initial missionary journeys, which you can read about in Acts 18 if you'd like. Um, and after moving on, Paul got a report that things weren't going super well. Um, so a series of letters basically went backwards and forwards, Uh, where Paul was saying, this is great, this isn't so good. Anyway, the church did not like that, and they responded really negatively. So when Paul came back for another visit, he actually was kind of walking into the space of rejection where these people had said, we don't like you anymore, and we don't want you speaking into our lives, which obviously Paul's hurt by, because this is a church that he like knows and loves and has helped start. Um, So he's super upset, they're super upset. He leaves couple more letters take place and then what we have here is one of those letters which is ahead of his uh, third visit where he's essentially saying I'm going to be late and I'm kind of choosing to be late and there's a reason for it 
Um, but he wants them to kind of be assured that he loves them, despite the fact that actually they're in a rough patch right now and stuff is tough. But he's like, actually, we're still there. So we're seeing essentially a relationship breakdown between Paul and the Corinthian church. Um, a few months back, way back in 2018, when we were all fresh-faced and young and bright, uh, James Juice did a wonderful preach, which I would encourage you to kind of check out on the podcast app. Um, and it was called A Moment, A Model. And it was about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and how actually some of his things that he models in that moment teach us how to do, uh, deal with pressure throughout our whole life in just that kind of micro moment. And there is something similar happening in this passage where actually this is just one letter, but Paul's teaching the church and us how to actually deal with conflict and how to kind of succeed in relationships through our life, like right through our life, not just in this one moment. Um, so over the course of this morning, we're going to talk about three different ways that Paul kind of models how to do deep relationships, how to kind of get through conflict. Um, our first point today is that relationships are worth it. Um, I believe we have a picture. There we go. It's uh, this. You know what? I'm going to blame the aesthetics now. If you guys had a big curtain, this would be a lot clearer. But what we see here, this is me. This is my mother. Um, and we have a witty little caption that says, Mother and Son of the Year, World Champions, 1992 to present. Um, my mother, Susan Jernside, is the greatest mother in the world. Uh, I think she's awesome. If you have come here today and you have always believed your own mother was the best, I'm terribly sorry to break that news to you. I'm sure she's fine. Like, she's maybe second or third. But my mom is the undisputed worldwide champion of mothering. Um, she's uh, not here with us today. She's not dead. She's just at the Aberdeen North service, uh, kind of back in the city. Um, but I could list a whole bunch of reasons as to why she's great. Uh, however, we'd be here for quite a bit of time. Um, but one of the things that she would do, and if you're a young parent in the room, feel free to steal this idea because it's a great one, is that she would make a really big deal of our birthdays. Um, so on the mornings of our birthdays, she would get up quite early and she would go downstairs and she would open the living room door and she'd put all of her presents in the middle of the floor and then like kind of just in this like fun little pile and then she would leave the room and leave the door open but she would put over the door like birthday wrapping paper so as to kind of create a fake paper door and essentially make the room a present. So like that was the first thing you had to unpack was to like get to the door which as a kid is so fun because you wake up in the morning and you're like, ah, and you charge down the stairs and you jump through this paper. Or some years you feel a little bit more kind of conservative and you might just like poke a finger through and just sort of peel it back and then just step in. Um, but it was very fun. It was a great way to kind of like start your birthday. Uh, <laughs> and essentially the purpose of that was that you had to push through this thing in order to get to the good stuff that was in the middle of the room. And something similar is happening here in this passage where Paul is choosing to push through relational conflict and to push through this barrier in order to get to the good stuff that is beyond that. Why was Paul writing this letter to tell him he was going to be late? Like, I'm late for stuff all the time. And I, I just turn up and I kind of think, why are you guys all early? Like, I don't generally explain myself in advance. Um, but Paul was doing it because tensions were really high in that moment between them all. And he wanted to be really clear that they understood why he was doing it. So he wasn't saying, hey, you guys disrespected me in my last visit. Therefore, I'm going to disrespect you by being late and to make it seem like this isn't important. He definitely wasn't doing that. This isn't like-for-like -like behavior. It's not a power dynamic. 
this is our attempt to pacify and resolve fallout. It's this moment of kind of honesty and good communication and love between all these people. Paul changes his plans not out of a sense of self-importance or wanting to say, hey, my agenda is what matters and you guys are secondary. But he's doing it in order to work with the Corinthian church. Paul starts this letter with a statement essentially saying, I'm delaying my visit, but it's not for the reasons you think. And here's why. Because if Paul changed his plans just as a reaction or just to spite the Corinthian church, then all that leads to is just more standoff and more fallout and more hurt and more people essentially just building turrets kind of and flinging stuff between each other. It's just more standoff. The goal in this delay is to produce a joyful visit for all. But in order to achieve this, Paul's letter had to deal openly and honestly with the source of the problem. He has to say, guys, I'm coming back, but I'm taking the longer route. Because this hurts. So actually, I'll go the longer way, and I'll prepare my heart. And in this kind of period, you guys prepare your heart too, so that when we meet, we're both going to be in a better place to resolve this issue together. We're going to push through this conflict together. Paul is saying, I love you, and that's why we have to work this out between us. He's saying, I'm going to get in the trenches with you. We're going to deal with the problem. What a powerful message that is to our society today. To divorce culture, where more people are kind of walking out on long-term relationships than ever before. Or to broken family dynamics, where we have aunts or cousins or uncles that we just don't speak to anymore because somebody said something 20 years ago and we've just decided that's the new status quo. We don't communicate now. Or to business where maybe somebody makes a mistake and we decide that's it, that's their shot, and I'm never working with them again. Are we, as a people, willing to get in the trenches with those around us or do we always want the high ground? Are our relationships based on love or are they based on power? The church is saying to Paul that they don't want him speaking into their lives anymore, but he is essentially saying, no, 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 I'm going to keep this door more than open. I'm going to kind of take on this posture of pursuit and go after this relationship, even though you guys want to bail. We're pushing through this together. We're going to face this together. And it reminds me of that kind of birthday wrapping paper door thing, because Actually, when you're on one side of the door, you can't see the presence on the other side. You have no assurance that there's anything there. And you've got to push through to be like, yes, there's my presence. In relationship conflict, in standoffs, in broken moments, we have to sometimes take a faith decision to push through the barrier and actually believe that there is something further down the road there. We have to have more hope for our relationships, even when it seems like it's dead, it's not coming back. If we want to get to the good stuff, you've got to push through and believe, actually, there is more to this relationship. This isn't as far as we're going to go. And I'd like to challenge you today. Maybe that's provoking some stuff inside of you. Maybe you're just like, to be honest, Johnny, you don't know my situation. And you're totally right. I've got no idea what your situation is. But... I feel like if you left today and you had something in your heart to send a text message or to ring the neighbor's door or to write a letter and take that first step to try and repair that relationship, 
I think that would be an excellent life decision. Um, our next point. There is a, a striking realness from this letter from Paul. Um, there is this kind of sense of directness and honesty right through the passage. But in the final verse particularly, he writes, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Into a toxic culture of boasting and self-congratulation and self-preservation and physical strength and beauty and all that, Paul, who is a grown man, tells the church that he wept over the fact that they were having a fallout. How he was filled with anguish and distress. And he's not being overly dramatic to make a good letter. Like These are heavy words. He tells them he has a deep, deep love for them. Which is so countercultural to that environment. What a vulnerable position he's putting himself in when they're saying, we don't like you anymore. He's saying, guys, I've been in tears over this. This really hurts. That's precisely because Paul realizes how important it is to be uh, real in our relationships with each other. And I have a bit of sympathy for the Corinthian church. Like, if you're a little Corinthian kid and you've grown up and your whole life you've been told, look after yourself, make yourself the best, always win, always dominate, be stronger. It would seem madness to choose to be vulnerable. You would think Paul was just like off his head. That's precisely why I think Paul does it. Like, we wouldn't have a bunch of these letters if Paul hadn't chosen to sift through culture and be like, this is good, but this doesn't fly with God. He wants to model to them, this is how you do a godly way of relationships and conflict, even though the environment around you says, nah, that's not the way. So he's not going to fight back. He's also not going to avoid anything. He's not going to pretend that no hurt has taken place. He's going to be real, and he's going to be vulnerable with the church. Um, the great writer and Christian thinker, C.S. Lewis. We got any Narnia fans in the room? Wonderful. We got any Space Trilogy fans? There we go. Very good. Like a little niche crowd. Very well done. I will say as well, that's three fans. That's more than any other site. So well done. Well done. <laughs> um, so yeah, he wrote a bunch of stuff. But in this book called Four Loves, he once wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Paul loves the Corinthian church, and he could win the fight by reprimanding them and by saying, hey guys, actually, scripturally, we've got this point, this point, this point. You're wrong. I'm right. But he doesn't do that because Paul isn't concerned about winning the fight. He's concerned about winning the relationship and about seeing it through to the end. That's the real victory. It's not this one moment. He's wanting to make sure that this conflict doesn't kill a good thing. It's about being real and going deeper and going further 
together. Paul loves them, and all of his actions and all of his words are motivated by that love for them because Paul understands that to follow Jesus is to live a lifestyle of love. And to live a lifestyle of love is to live a lifestyle of vulnerability. So again, Paul's modeling of these guys. Um, you could go through your whole life trying not to be hurt by anybody. You could genuinely leave this morning and try and make that decision. Never really letting anybody in. And <laughs> I think that's a super dangerous thing to do to your heart. You'll lose friends that way. Um, and you'll keep some people around, but the people that maybe stay, it might only ever be shallow because you've not fully let people into your life. You'll never really journey deeply with folk. Conflict is a part of deep relationships with people. Like, if you know anybody long enough, you're going to have moments where it sucks and it's tough. But do you choose to say, this is as far as we go? Or do you say, ah, we're going further, we're pushing through? This is um, a heavy point, so I won't dwell on it too much. But as a guy, I've been raised in this kind of British Western culture that essentially teaches men not to be emotional. Um, expressions like boys don't cry or have a stiff upper lip. It's stuff that we all know and it's like just so part of our culture. And kids absorb stuff. Like even if you're not massively teaching it, like that stuff gets in you. And I want to say that stuff sucks. Like. That is precisely the opposite of being vulnerable, trying to repress emotion. And we have a male mental health crisis in this country, kind of as a result of that. Like, suicide is the leading cause of death for men in the UK under the age of 50. And I get that it's complex, but statistics show that men are three times as likely to commit suicide as women because they're less likely to ask for help or to talk about their feelings or to say, I'm not doing okay, or I'm hurt right now. They just batten down the hatches. Because we've been ingrained in this culture of not being vulnerable. And our culture doesn't endorse vulnerability, and it's literally killing us. But the Bible does have a lot to say about vulnerability, and Jesus has a lot to say about vulnerability. In this moment, Paul has a lot to say about vulnerability. So if we're going to do deep relationships, if we're going to journey deeply with people, then we have to get comfortable being real and letting people into the parts of our life that we want to shut off, that feel weak and that we feel embarrassed about. I'm aware that that is sensitive stuff. So if you're here today and you're having a tough time or you know somebody who is, then we would definitely create space to pray for the end because that stuff isn't easy. Um, and for the sake of integrity and practicing what I preach, I've known that stuff. Like, I had a really hard time with depression when I was like 22, 23, and it came out of nowhere and just, like, completely knocked me sideways. And one of the things that was hardest about that whole season was just telling people, like, and it was people I'd known my whole life, like, just saying, I'm, this is a thing, and I'm having a hard time here. I get that it's not easy, but again, it's a really good thing to do if you can just open up there. And honestly, we as a church are called to a bigger and deeper way of doing relationships. When the world is having a vulnerability crisis, I feel like it's on us like to model that. When Mairns Mearns is having a vulnerability crisis, it's kind of on the people of this room to model 
this is what it means to be real. I'm going to say I'm feeling weak. And honestly, like from personal experience, when you open up to somebody, it's super disarming. Like they will open up to you about their struggles. I've told people I once had depression and immediately they come up to me and be like, I'm having it right now and it sucks. So the people in your life that you're around, open up a bit more, be a bit more real. Take a leaf out of Paul's book and cry, experience anguish, experience distress. That's fine, that's good. <laughs> Tell people about hurt. If somebody has hurt you, process that a bit. Don't just pretend it never happened. Because it's the only way we're going to journey deeply with people through our lives. <clears throat> and um, lastly, resolution is a kingdom value. Is there, is there any bakers in the house? That page, good man, number two. Anyone else? You know what? You're big, oh, three, there we go. You're big Narnia fans. You're not big bakers. If I'm going to give some constructive feedback to you guys as a site, bake more often. Uh, other sites have got all their hands in the air. There's a lot of enthusiasm for the baking. Huh? There's more, just some shy bakers. Hey, well, let's be real with each other, eh? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not much of a baker myself. I am an enthusiastic novice. Uh, I think I'm mostly just like butter and sugar. Um, but... How good is that moment when you finish making your mixture and you put it in the oven? And what's the thing you do? Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. You lick the bowl. Absolutely. You lick the bowl. You lick the spoon. And it's great. It's such a nice moment. It's so satisfying. Um, and I'm sure there's like a health risk to that, probably. Um, honestly, if you're a doctor in the room, I don't care. I'm going to be like on my deathbed just shoveling raw cookie dough, being like, I know what I'm about. <laughs> this is fine. Um, but it's good because, I mean, it tastes great, but it's also good because it's kind of like a foretaste of what your cake is going to be like. Like, you experience the raw batter now, but in about 45 minutes to an hour, you'll experience the cake fully. It tastes similar to what it's going to taste like. And we see both in this passage, and actually right through the story of the Bible, that resolution speaks to something deep within heaven itself. In heaven, there is no pain, there is no sickness, there are no tears. Therefore, there will be no relational fallout. We won't have disputes. We won't have people that we just don't talk to anymore. The way of the world is to hold on to our pain. It's to batten down the hatches. It's to win. It's to dominate. It's to be right all the time. But the way of heaven is to serve. It's to communicate well. It's to seek healing and peace and restoration. Good communication that seeks resolution is a kingdom quality. And if we allow ourselves to be shaped by the world, there's always going to be fallout and disputes and divides. We've got to grasp onto something a bit higher. And Paul is reminding the church this when he says, we're a new people. We've been saved, sealed, and anointed. We're going somewhere and we're being internally transformed. And misunderstanding and bitterness and hurt and fallout it can feel small at the beginning, but it leads to like an erosion of relationships. Um, it's kind of like two little like banks of a cliff, and it's like when once there was a distance, over time it just erodes further and further and further, and the gap gets super big, and it gets impossible to cross that again. And actually, I think it affects our connection not just to that individual, but to each other. Like when we have somebody or something we've frozen out of our life, I think that affects how we all interact. Because there's a part of us that's like shut off. 
But to be followers of Jesus is to love beyond pride, to love beyond insecurity, is to love beyond hurt. It's to be a bridge builder between broken people over that divide. And there's actually a kind of prophetic angle to this. We restore now because it hints at something of our future. When we say things in church like, God, would your kingdom come? Or we sing that kind of stuff in worship. We're just saying words that we've always grown up hearing or singing things because it's like on the screen. We're genuinely asking that moment, God, would you make this place more like heaven? And I think that means that to live in the kingdom is to get over our fallouts. It's to push through conflict. It's to wade through some of that heavy, messy stuff in the name of peace and reconciliation. And we see this idea right through the Bible. Um, Tower of Babel in Genesis is this moment in humanity where ambition takes over and people are building this tower to try and get to heaven and to try and make something really impressive. And it all starts out well. But then over time, I don't know, pride steps in. They stop communicating with each other. They all start speaking different languages and nobody understands. And the building stops. And then there's this story through the Old Testament of just war and war and fighting and fighting. But then there's this moment in the book of Acts during Pentecost where the Spirit falls on people and they start speaking in tongues again. And people from all around can understand what's going on. And then the church can get back to work with the building project. We can build the kingdom together because we're united and we can shake hands and we can look each other in the eye and we can actually speak to each other. Resolution, the healing of hearts, bringing people together. That has always been the nature of God. And we see in this passage where Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What a line. Like if you're a note taker today, I would say write that line down. It's a banger. Get it tattooed in your arm or something. I think it's a really good line. Through him, the amen is spoken by us. What is true of God is true of Christ. And we participate in that. We say amen to that. We say, I want to be a part of that. In heaven, we see resolution. So when we resolve a conflict today, we're literally making earth more like heaven. We're literally building the kingdom of God. Jesus came to restore things to the way they ought to be, which means us, means me as an individual, means you as an individual, means the church, it means all people, it means relationships. It means we're building bridges and not walls between each other. And we say amen to that. We say that's our mission statement. Let it be so. Let's sign up to that cause. Um, it's a really good Dutch uh, kind of theologian called Henry Nguyen, who does a lot of actually brilliant writing in, um, yeah, around brokenness. Um, and he once wrote, and I really like this, it will come up on the screen. In a world so torn apart by rivalry, anger, and hatred, we have the privileged vocation to be living signs of a love that can bridge all divisions and heal all wounds. We have the privileged vocation or role, or job, or task, or opportunity 
to be living signs of love that bridges division and heals wounds. To go back to that kind of raw cake batter analogy, um, resolution is going to take place in heaven whether you like it or not. It's not particularly up for debate. So if you don't like the taste of that now, then I feel like heaven's going to be a little bit weird for you. If you're holding on to a thing now and you think, nah, we're going to let that one slide, that relationship's not going to be restored, what's going to happen when you're like in the corridors of heaven and you pass by somebody? Like, yeah. That relative you can't look in the eye or that coworker that you used to be friends and now you don't speak. What are you doing about that today? There's so many stories of people like famous biographies and stuff where people get their deathbed and then they patch things up with like family members. What is the point in that? Like, what a waste of time and what a risk to be on your deathbed and think, you know what, I'm going to write a letter today. Why not do that today? Why not have a kind of, I mean, it's dark, but like a deathbed status today and like how you do things and think, actually, I'm going to do it today rather than wait 30 years just because. We should think of that stuff with a heavenly perspective. So as we kind of come into land, let's just recap. Um, in conflict and resolution, what do we need to remember? What are some kind of lessons that Paul has modeled in the passage? We learned that relationships are worth it. They are worth pushing through to go deeper. We learned that to love is to be vulnerable. And to love well means to also love when we're weak. We feel embarrassed or hurt. And lastly, we learn that resolution is a kingdom value. So when we resolve a fight today, we are literally building the kingdom of God.